Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. The NBA regular season is almost upon us, and with it comes the Pacific Division. So today I'm here with Jordan Schultz. And Jordan, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. Like you mentioned, NBA season is right around the corner. Um, it's I'm ready to get started. I've been you know loving this preseason action, but I'm ready for these games to start meaning something. And speaking of games that mean something, maybe those games won't exactly mean as much at the beginning of the season as they will towards the end of the season. The Golden State Warriors, who won 67 games last year and finished with a better point differential than they did in their 73-win season the year before when they didn't have Kevin Durant. And now they have another year to get Durant comfortable with the rest of the stars on the roster. But what might go more under the radar than Steph Curry's massive extension and Kevin Durant's slightly under-market deal, namely not a max deal, the Warriors really strengthened their depth this season with a couple of key bench signings. So first of all, what were your thoughts on the Jordan Bell draft pick going from your beloved Bulls to the Warriors? You know, that one that one stings a little bit. Uh, it makes it a little bit better because I think most Bulls fans don't really feel like that was necessarily who the Bulls would have picked. I, we were not all convinced that they even really knew who Jordan Bell was. That was just the, the Warriors saying, take him and trade him to us. So I don't know if that necessarily <laughs> makes it better or worse, but at least then we can say we didn't just straight up sell him for cash. We just sold the pick, I guess. But he's an excellent pickup for them. Um, he's, you know, he looks like he's going to fit in really nicely in their system. And he's, at some point, he's going to be playing value minutes for them whether it's you know this year maybe more you know years two and three um he's he's the type of guy that's going to fit in well with them um and they really needed to strengthen up that bench you know you look at cleveland they got a lot deeper this year too and then you look at the moves golden state was able to do partially because of the the pay cut KD took which we'll talk about a little bit more later um but they really did a good job of strengthening the rest of their bench you know and making their their team that was already you know one of the best of all time even better the thing about the jordan bell move in my mind, is that Jordan Bell had some serious question marks in my mind heading into the NBA. And to be entirely clear, I really liked him as a player and thought that back in the first round would certainly not have been a bad place for him to get drafted. But the problem with Jordan Bell is that his offensive game is basically just his passing ability. And he's a pretty strong passer for a big man, but he can't really shoot and he can't really score. The thing is, he won't need to do either of those things when playing for the Warriors. And he can learn from Draymond Green, who's basically just the best outcome ceiling of Jordan Bell. And he can focus his efforts on passing and rebounding and most importantly, playing defense, where he's got the potential to be one of those guys that really can guard basically two through five. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like even, you know, they, they need some guys like that that are good, you know, getting their seven, eight points a game off of a couple offensive putbacks and they're good just, you know, getting the ball and passing it and running an offense. And when you have guys like Katie and Steph, you don't really need another ball dominant shooter. Um, so he really does fit in nicely. Like you said, if he was a guy that, you know, did go to my Bulls, he, you know, doesn't necessarily fit our rebuild, although he would be really nice in that system that we were kind of seeing, you know, that ball movement Chicago a little bit. But, you know, back on track, he does fit in really well with them, and he's the type of guy that fits well with that roster. And if you can just get him to the point where he gets, you know, around 10 points a game down the road 
but then you know just gets his rebounds, his assists, his blocks, his steals. That's all they really need out of him, and he's looks you know so far all signs point to them being able to get that out of him. And you know you look at the Warriors' track record of developing these young guys, and you have to feel really good if you're a Warriors fan about not only your you know your guys that are gonna win it for you now, but also you know guys like this that are gonna take the reins down the road as well. And if we're talking about great fits for the Warriors, we have to talk about Omri Caspi, who they got on a veteran minimum deal that is, in my mind, one of the best deals of the summer. And granted, I've been a huge fan of Omri Caspi for a while, as Jordan can attest to, my avatar in our hashtag basketball Slack group was Omri Caspi for the last two years. Yes, yes, it was. (laughs) But the thing about Omri Caspi is that he is not a great defender, but he is a decent defender. And at 6'9", he's got the size to effectively switch out on defense. But really the most important part of his game for the Warriors is that he's an incredible three-point shooter. And it's not just that he's an incredible three-point shooter, but he's an incredible three-point shooter from well beyond the arc. And we saw this most clearly with Ryan Anderson in Houston, where he would stand about five feet behind the three-point line, and it would just create so much more space because teams had to cover him out there. And obviously the Warriors have the absolute master of this in Steph Curry, which we'll get to in a little bit, but Caspi's ability to shoot not just 23-foot three-pointers, but 28-foot three-pointers will really help space out the Warriors' second unit. And I've been saying since before Nick Young had a really disappointing training camp that Omri Caspi would probably end the season ahead of him in the rotation, and I'm just more convinced of that now. I think Caspi is an excellent fit for this team. Yeah, because he can play, you know, minutes at the three. He can play the small ball four. You can probably even run him out there at the two at times uh, just because he does shoot the ball so well, as you mentioned. He can play enough defense that where he's passable there. And with the rest of the defenders that they do have on the roster, you know, you're not really going to notice him out there. Um, you know, Nick Young, he's another guy that he's going to come in. And I bet you we're going to see stretches this year where he comes in, you know, he has that game where he hits, you know, six of eight three-pointers in, you know, the second half, and then he just, you know, lights him. You know, the Warriors already do that where they'll just go on those runs, or, you know, we've seen Clay go on those historic runs. You know, Nick Young likes to cast it up. Um, Caspi, you know, you saw him battle it out against Steph Curry last year. I mean, they just are guys that fit their system really well where they can just come in and cast away from three and hit at a respectable rate. Um, you just you really have to give it off to the, give the hats off to the Warriors this year. They really nailed the offseason you know, tightening up the benches, everything they did, you know, makes you think they're going to be prepared for another championship run this year because they have guys that can take over for their starters that aren't a huge drop off and you don't really have to change the offense when they come in. And granted, the bench additions were really huge for the Warriors and will be really huge for the Warriors as the season goes on. But obviously the most important parts of their summer were their two deals for their superstar players. And I want to start off by talking about Kevin Durant's signing. There were rumblings that he might sign slightly below a max contract, even before the playoffs, actually, because of their cap situation. The Warriors could re-sign Andre Iguodala if Kevin Durant took $4 million under his $35 million maximum just because of how they could go over the cap to sign Iguodala. But instead of opting for the $31 million that would have allowed the Warriors the flexibility to re-sign their guys, Durant took a lot less. 
And granted, the two-year, $53 million deal that he accepted will, barring catastrophic injury, be a one-year, $27 million contract. But this sort of came up when Clay Thompson was asked about contract extensions. It really set a precedent that will be huge for the Warriors in the next couple of years when Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, respectively, come up for new deals. I mean, yeah, you hope so. You also look at, you know, Curry, he just cashed in on that deal. But in his defense, he did kind of have one of the most ridiculously low contracts, you know, per his production the last few years. So you knew he was going to take that payday. But yeah, I mean, for all the flat KD gets, you can't say he's not a team player that's, you know, willing to take a hit for the good of the team. They can get, you know, some other guys to take cuts like this that allows them to keep that core there without going, you know, too crazy over the luxury tax. You know, they're already the second highest payroll in the NBA. So any, you know, any cash they can save anywhere, you know, they have to be happy about it, especially when it's coming from, you know, the best player. A lot of the, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how Damon Lillard just kind of came in and completely changed the culture in Portland. Like, you know, you hope Durant, does this and you know changes the culture you know even better than it already has been there in golden state and you know you see some of these other guys take a little bit of a hometown discount to keep the crew together you know they did a lot to make this happen you know to put this big four together so you would be willing you would think that they'd be willing to kind of sacrifice to keep it together when they've seen how much success they've had with it and now that we've talked about the durant deal let's move on to that steph curry deal that you brought up earlier the original steph curry contract extension made the entire warriors ethos and entire team possible because they got two MVPs in four years from a guy making $11 million a year. They would never have been able to sign Kevin Durant if that weren't the case. And something that started to come across my mind towards the end of last season was that people were talking about the Warriors as a team with Kevin Durant as their best player. And I would still argue that Steph Curry is the best player on the Warriors. And Jonathan Charks of The Ringer, I want to give him a shout out because he wrote an excellent article about Steph Curry and just the effect he has on this team. So I want to read off some stats from that article. The Warriors had an offensive rating of 118.1 with Steph Curry on the floor last year, which was far better than even their league-leading offensive rating. When he sat, their offensive rating was 102.4, which would have been around 26th best in the league. Wow. In the playoffs... With Curry on the floor, offensive rating 123.1, which is just laughable. And without him, 95.9, which would have been worse than the league worst offense last season. And we talked about Omri Caspi earlier being a sniper from well beyond the arc. Steph Curry from 30 to 43 feet, which is just a ridiculous range of shots, period. He went 33 of 76. And in 2014, the league leader in that category was Jamal Crawford with four makes from that distance. That's insane. Like, it doesn't surprise me, but I, the, the numbers about, you know, how big the, the, the point differentials were, that's a little bit surprising. I didn't realize there was that big of a difference, but... I mean, yeah, Curry is, you know, the guy that even if, you know, there's stretches where Durant is the best player on the floor, um, you know, similar to his contract situation making it happen, you know, Curry is kind of what makes it happen. You know, he's the guy that even when he doesn't have the ball, you have to keep an eye on him all the time. Like you mentioned out to, you know, 40, 40 or 43 feet or whatever that statistic was because he's hitting, you know. 
40% from out there. You just, man, you just wonder how long this, you know, this dynasty is going to keep rolling because you look, you know, as long as they're able to keep, you know, Clay Thompson uh, after next year, um, you imagine Durant, you know, will probably maybe, maybe opt out and re-sign a longer course who knows maybe he'll just keep taking the one-year deals like lebron is but you know draymond's under contract for three more seasons like it's it's hard to imagine that these guys aren't in the finals you know at least the next three seasons and the thing about curry is he is clearly the best shooter that the nba has ever seen but the thing about that incredible shooting is that steph curry could shoot zero times in a game and still completely screw up the other team's defense because it doesn't matter if he's O of 10, or if he's O of O and hasn't shot yet, you cannot leave Steph Curry alone on the perimeter. And the fact that he can shoot so well from 30 to 43 feet means you can't leave Steph alone anywhere across the half court line. I mean, 43 feet is four feet in from half court, and he's shooting 40% from that range. Yeah, I mean, it's just an absolute matchup nightmare. I mean, how do you guard a guy like that? Like, and, and unless you, you know, you have a guy like Kawhi or one of those elite defenders, you can't really guard him one-on-one and expect to shut him down. You know, add in the fact you have to guard him out 40-plus feet realistically. It's just, there's there's not a lot you can do because with all the other talent on the roster, you can't double-team him. Like, what are you going to leave one of Clay or uh, KD open for? Like, even, you know, uh, Draymond does a good job knocking him down from the outside. It's just everything Curry does, he, he is probably the most impactful player in the game as you mentioned he doesn't doesn't need to take up a lot of his shots just his pure presence there um the defense always has to keep an eye on him no matter what you know what he's doing where he's at it's he is the warriors you know durant may be the best player at times but without curry their whole system would not be possible moving on to the los angeles clippers who traded their franchise player in chris paul but somehow got one of the best hauls in a superstar trade this offseason. They got Patrick Beverly, who isn't exactly an offensive dynamo, but can replace Chris Paul on the defensive end, seeing as the two of them were the first team all-defense guards this past season. They got Sam Decker, who will be really helpful as a bench forward, and combo forwards have been what this team has desperately needed for years and years now, as we'll get to in a little bit. But I guess I'm just still a little bit confused as to how the Clippers managed to get a better return for Chris Paul, who literally could have just opted out and left for nothing, than, say, the Pacers got for Paul George. Yeah, I think about the only team you could argue got more back for their superstar was the Cavs, if IT comes back, you know, 90% of what he was before. Um, It was hands down, you know, the first or, you know, arguably the second best trade for a superstar, like you had said. Um, you know, you Patrick Beverly, you know, he's not a bad guy to replace him with there, especially when you add Milos to your dosage. Um, they're, I don't think that they're really going to drop off that much. I still have the Clippers as a playoff teams in the West. I just think you're going to see a little bit more of that offense go, you know, through Blake Griffin, uh, DeAndre Jordan's shown he's still going to do the same things. You know, Lou Williams fits in perfectly on the wing there. They got Danilo Gallinari. Um, they really, for losing their franchise player, I don't really feel like they got that much worse, which, you know, is hard to believe when you take Chris Paul off of any team um but they really did you know they got a nice return on that trade they've done a nice job filling out the rest of their roster with some cheap contracts um you know a little bit of a hole there at the small forward position you know gallo will play some of the minutes there um but you don't have a ton there same with the shooting guard they're a little thin there but they still have enough there that i think they're gonna be competitive in the western conference so their forward depth is definitely going to be a big question this season but i'm not sure i agree on the guards just because I think that 
in Milo Stadosic, Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, and Austin Rivers. They will have solid guard play between the four of them for basically all 48 minutes. And Beverly is a little small to guard bigger guards, but he took the tougher guard matchup literally every single night last season that he was playing alongside James Harden. And Teodosic is flammable on defense, but he's at least big enough to pretend to guard shooting guards. And Austin Rivers spent some time at the three last season. He can definitely switch between the two guard positions. And Lou Williams is a combo guard and has been for his whole career. So I think their guard depth will actually be one of the biggest strengths this team has other than, of course, their biggest strength, which is their frontcourt rotation. And Danilo Gallinari said on Media Day that he thought they would have the best starting frontcourt in the NBA, and I'm not sure he's that far off. And all of that will rest on the shoulders of Blake Griffin. The Clippers gave him a five-year max extension shortly after Chris Paul was traded out of town. And there are two things I think that will be important to think about with Griffin this coming season. First of all, being that his injury concerns, I think, are a little bit overstated just because some of his major injuries, like his broken kneecap or his broken hand from punching a trainer or his staph infection, they're not the kind of injuries that derail careers like it's not a bill walton's foot or a greg odin's knees uh yeah they definitely i don't think they're that far off like you said their front court depth if they can stay healthy you know galinari is another guy that has a little bit of an injury concern but I, I i agree with you there i'm not i'm not worried about blake staying healthy i'm not you know super worried about that um it's just been a lot of weird luck there um, so I'm not, I'm not too bullish on that. You know, I do think that if him, Gallo, uh, and, you know, DJ stay healthy there, they're going to compete just with those guys. Um, I, I think that the, they'll be all right in the backcourt if they can get away with playing Beverly, you know, guarding some of those bigger twos. I do think their best lineup is probably going to be with Milos and Patrick Beverly on the floor together, partly because I think Lou Williams is best suited, you know, kind of in a playmaking role where he has the ball in his hand, kind of the de facto point guard. And then I just don't know if, you know, I just don't know how how well it's going to work out with those three there. I think that they have a nut there that they could compete. I just I still think that it's a little bit of a question mark. Something I'll be watching. You know, hope you know maybe I'll be wrong. Um, but man, you look at like some of those plays Milos has made. I mean, you man, he is exciting to watch there. I can see why you know people are excited about him. Um, you just wonder how he holds up. You know, at 30 years old coming over to you know an 82 game season. Uh, but if they can get you know 65 to 70 games out of him, you know, 25 minutes a game, um, they definitely. Will be okay at the point guard position between him and uh, Lou Williams and Pat Beverly. One other thing on the Clippers, Danilo Gallinari's injury concerns, as you referred to earlier, I think are a lot more of a problem than Blake's injury concerns because unlike Blake, who's had a lot of unlucky injuries, Gallo has really struggled with his health throughout his career, but especially since he missed the 2013-14 season. So since he missed the 2013-14 season, he's played 59 games, 53 games, and 63 games last year. So his healthiest year since the injury. And he can be an incredibly potent force on the offensive end, especially with getting to the free throw line where he's one of the best in the league. But I'm a lot more worried about him breaking down due to injury than I am with Blake. And honestly, I'm more worried about Gallo breaking down due to injury than I am worried about Teodosic, who will be 
one of the five worst defenders in the NBA next season. I'm pretty confident in that, but he'll also just be an absolute joy to watch. Let's move on to the other Los Angeles team, the Los Angeles Lakers. And their biggest acquisitions all sort of came through the draft rather than free agency, although they did sign one notable free agent who we'll get to later. And Lonzo Ball, I think, will be a top rookie of the year candidate because he's going to have the ball in his hands all the time and he's going to put up a lot of stats. But I'm a bit concerned about how effective he's going to be, or rather how ineffective I think he's going to be at getting to the rim next year. Yeah, I think that part of his game will be something that is a work in progress over the next few years. But I I do agree, he's going to do so many good things that you're kind of going to overlook that this year. Um, The Lakers, you know, they really did a pretty good job of putting together a nice lineup. You know, they got some nice steals in the draft this year. Um, You know, Kyle Kuzma, we'll talk about a little bit more. He looks like he's going to play a role. You know, Walton just said he he may start potentially or, you know, challenge for a starting spot. Um, You just kind of wonder what shakes out there at the power forward position if he does do that. Uh, But they've done a good job. They're not the Lakers that are the laughingstock of the league, you know, paying Kobe Bryant half their salary anymore. They're set up pretty nicely here. And their other big move was when they traded D'Angelo Russell for Brooke Lopez. Although, if you talk to Lakers fans who were at Summer League, they probably think of that as the Kyle Kuzma trade at this point. But Brooke Lopez, I think, is a very underrated player because people have expected him to drag some pretty unfortunate Nets teams a lot further than he's been able to take them. But he's... A very smart defender, even though he doesn't have the athletic tools to do much other than stand by the rim and protect the rim. But he's always in the right place on defense. It's just a matter of him getting there quickly enough, which is an issue. And he's still a potent offensive force, especially with his back to the basket. And I think that the Lakers will be significantly better than they were last year. And a lot more of that will be because of Brooke Lopez than people might think. Yeah, Brooke Lopez is definitely, I would I would feel pretty confidently in saying he's going to be their leading scorer this year. Um, he's he's you know, a very good player. He's really stepped out and added that three-point shot to his game in the last few years, which has just made him you know that much more uh, difficult to guard. Uh, they they really, you know, you look at their lineup top to bottom, you know, Lonzo Ball, KCP is going to start at the two, Brandon Ingram, um, you know, Randall, Nance, Kuzma at the power forward, and then Brooke Lopez there. It's That's a pretty nice starting five. You know, you I, I'm not too sure if uh, Brooke Lopez or KCP will be back this year, but I think they're both really nice veterans to have there on one-year contracts. You know, as this young Lakers core really grows another year, it's, you know, if you can, you know, retain one of them, you know, maybe Brooke Lopez, you know, continues to put up, you know, career seasons, and then he's there for a couple more years and he's kind of the veteran that is you know the presence there as they grow into a playoff team in that western conference um but where do you do you think he's back this next year um or do you think that you know he's just a one-year rental i think that that will entirely depend on if the lakers can get a star in free agency and as we'll get to later their options on that front are drying up There is one thing I did want to push back on, though. You said that Brooke Lopez has been extending his game from deep the past few years, but actually he took a grand total of 31 three-pointers in his career before last year, and then last year he shot 387 threes and made them at 
about league average, 34.6%. So that three-point shot is something that's very new for him, even though it's something that you could have seen coming just because he's always been an excellent mid-range jump shooter and really underrated on that front. And now that he's taken a few steps back, he's made himself a lot more valuable. But let's move on to their other presumed one-year rental in Contavious Caldwell-Pope. And I think I'm actually a little more optimistic about KCP sticking around in Los Angeles than I am about Brooke, just because KCP is nearly a perfect fit for Alonzo Ball. He's big enough to defend at both guard positions, although he's actually been more effective on point guards, interestingly enough, despite the fact that he's a pure shooting guard on the offensive end. But his three-point shooting percentages haven't looked as good as they should based on his shooting talent because he's just been jacking up a lot of shots from deep and been heavily guarded on all of them in a Pistons offense that has been desperate for spacing for years now. Yeah, I think he'll play a lot better. He fits in really well with what they need here, Um, especially if you're assuming, you know, Brandon Ingram takes another step forward and becomes kind of that go-to scorer they're hoping he turns into, you know, over the course of his career. Um, They're really going to need guys like him that are okay kind of be in that 3 and D role, Um, where, you know, KCP is, you know, if he's your fourth or fifth best starter, your lineup's going to be doing okay. Um, I I don't know. I think I would almost go the other way, and if I was putting my money on it, I think I would bet on Brook Lopez being back over KCP. Um, But then again, and um, he does fit in there really nicely. I, I don't think Jordan Clarkson, you know, I, I can't imagine they'll retain him after his contract's up. Um, you just, you know, I, you just kind of wonder how much money they'll invest in him just because they are going to be on the hunt for a big free agent. Um, but I think now that there's a really good chance Paul George stays in Oklahoma City and that's the big one they're wanting. Um, I, I don't know if necessarily if, you know, they're going to get another big star. I, I feel like at some point the stars are going to start heading east just to kind of level it out. Um, but everything that's happened so far has kind of been against that. So I guess, you know, what do I really know? Let's move on to the Phoenix Suns, who had one of the quieter off seasons in the league, mostly because they're very, very firmly in rebuilding mode at this point, as we learned when they shut down a basically healthy Eric Bledsoe in February to try and lose as many games as possible last year. And they were at least somewhat rewarded for that intensive losing when they got to pick Josh Jackson at number four overall. And I think Josh Jackson is a good long-term fit with Devin Booker, but I think next year in particular, Jackson has absolutely no jump shot and absolutely no semblance of a jump shot and absolutely no semblance of hope for a jump shot. And maybe that's a little too negative, but I've seen nothing in Josh Jackson's game that would indicate that he ever has a chance at being even a league average three-point shooter. And I would be surprised if he climbs above 30% from deep anytime in his first three years in the league, unless he makes like three of nine from deep next season. Right. See, I'm a little bit more optimistic that, you know, he's a guy that will be able to develop a jump shot. You know, his mechanics aren't great, but they're not completely busted. Like, I feel like there's still hope that he could at least become, you know, league average. But, you know, you look at the rest of that roster, you know, you know, Bledsoe, Ulysses, Devin Booker, TJ Warren. Um, they got some guys that can, you know, step out and hit from perimeter. So that will help him still get minutes because I don't think they'll necessarily need him to try and, you know, play that outside shooter role. He can kind of just take it slow and be a slasher and get some put back dunks and kind of just be a rookie that comes 
comes along slowly. You know, as you mentioned, they're firmly in that rebuild. They've been pretty open about it. The fan base is behind it. Um, they didn't want to, you know, try and you know screw it up and rush the rebuild. So they're still playing that slow game. Um, so there's going to be a lot of opportunity for Jackson to grow. And I, I do. I was honestly kind of shocked that Jackson went fourth. I thought he should have been, you know, number three overall. Um, I, I do like Jackson. I think he has arguably the highest ceiling of you know any of the rookies in this class if he hits. Um, does you know carry a little bit more risk than you know some of the other guys that are drafted around him. But I, I like Jackson quite a bit. I still think he's going to be a really good NBA player. I think I think you know at the you know ten years down the road we'll look back at it and he'll have had a better career than you know, a guy like TJ Warren, who I also, you know, really like quite a bit. Yeah, I'm not out on Josh Jackson. I'm just really out on his shooting. And I think that will be particularly a problem next year because the dirty little secret in Phoenix is that Devin Booker is not as good of a shooter as people think he is. He is a 35.4% career shooter from deep, and he's much more of a mid-range game scorer than he is a long-range shooter. And that kind of offense is great when you want to put up 70 points in a game that doesn't matter against the Celtics, but it's a little bit less useful when you're talking about scoring efficiently. And I think Devin Booker certainly has all the skills needed to be a primary option on offense and a really, really talented offensive player, but he's a little bit more of a chucker right now than I think most of his fans are willing to admit. Yeah, he definitely has, but he was kind of, I feel like in a way, a little bit forced into that role last year, especially once they, you know, shut down Bledsoe and just tanked for the year. Um, but I don't know. I, I like the Sun score. I still think Booker, I think, you know, he hasn't been the most efficient shooter, but he's also still just like a ridiculously young age right now. Um, like he's still going to grow a lot. I'm, I, I think he'll be one of the guys that, um, you know, is one of the NBA elites for the next decade. Um, you know, you look around at all the other NBA guys or, you know, a large portion of them, they all say, you know, he's one of the best up and coming get players. You know, when you just watch him play, I, I think that he'll have room to become an even better shooter than he is. Um, but hey, you know, I could be wrong on that. But I, I'm all in on the Suns team. I like if the Bulls could be in a situation where their roster looks, you know, similar to this roster in two, three years, I would be very happy. Let's move on to another very young and entirely rebuilding team in the Sacramento Kings who traded their star player in DeMarcus Cousins for a trade haul that I'm still really disappointed in, but certainly I'm a lot happier with it after seeing what the Pacers got for Paul George. But this team is an interesting mix of young players and veterans, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the De'Aaron Fox, George Hill, Buddy Heald, Bogdan Bogdanovich backcourt rotation looks because I think that George Hill is another really underrated player when healthy but the issue there is when healthy and while I'm very much in on De'Aaron Fox overall I think that he has a really high chance of just hitting the rookie wall like a car driving into it at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I feel like I was definitely a little bit lower on Fox than like the general consensus around draft time. Um, not that you know, not that I'm out on him, but I do think that he has a lot more risk than you know pretty much any of the other point guards that were drafted around him. Um, George Hill, he's gonna be he's gonna be a nice piece for them. I'm honestly surprised he was one of the his signing with Sacramento was one of the more um, shocking things, at least in my opinion, to happen this season. Um, I just didn't really see him going to a team that was pretty obviously headed for a rebuild, you know, obviously after getting rid of Boogie. Um, but, you know, some interesting pieces there. I just, I feel like there's a chance Hill, you know, could be traded again this season. I'm pretty sure the NBA, you know, rules will allow for that. I think you have to wait till like the December 15th deadline, but I wouldn't be shocked if he's moved and they try and 
transition to Fox. But I also wouldn't be shocked if Fox is, you know, not quite ready to take the reins at that point. So it may be something where they keep him around, just kind of mentor him a little bit uh, a little bit this year. Um, I think Bogdan Mangdanovich is another guy that's going to surprise a lot of people this year. Um, he's, you know, a pretty good defender. He'll come in, he'll shoot the three ball really well. Um, you know, you wonder if you could play him alongside Buddy Hield at all, or if he's a guy that's, you know, at least his first year as he adjusts the NBA, he's going to have to strictly play minutes at the two. But, you know, Justin Jackson, Vince Carter at the three, you know, there's not a lot there. Vince Carter can still play, but he's not who you want playing 30 minutes a game in a rebuild. Uh, so you just, that's kind of one thing I'm interested to see if they try and go with that healed Bogdan lineup and just try and shoot some teams out of it. You know, I think Bogdan is actually a pretty solid bet to start at the three at some point this season. First of all, because Vladi Divac has been very in on Bogdan for a while now and was very, very happy that the Kings managed to convince him to come to the NBA this season. In terms of George Hill getting traded, I think it's a lot more likely that Hill gets traded next offseason and that they sort of keep him around for the full year this year to mentor De'Aaron Fox. And while I don't think De'Aaron is going to have a fantastic rookie year, there is one factor that could potentially lead him to a really solid rookie year and sort of blow away all expectations, which is he is just ridiculously fast. And the thing about being as quick as De'Aaron Fox is where there was one play in Summer League where he stole the ball and was a full 20 feet or so behind Marquise Chris, who's a quite exceptional athlete, and Fox just blew past him. And granted, Marquise Chris is a big man and Fox is a guard, but just the speed with which Fox takes off is a sight to behold, and he'll be able to get to the rim really effectively just because he's so much faster than even the most elite of point guard athletes in the NBA. And I think that speed alone might be enough to at least help him cobble together a solid rookie season with good defense for a rookie and maybe even good defense generally. Yeah, I mean, if you're buying, you know, Darren Fox, that's definitely what you're hoping for. You know, he's a guy, you know, we're talking about Josh Jackson, you know, being a liability from shooting it from deep. I feel like Fox is even more of a liability in that sense. Um, you really hope that uh, long-range shot can come around for him. Otherwise, he is going to have to really hope that that athleticism translates and he's able to just out-athlete some of these other point guards as he, you know, adds that element to his game. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the sky is high there. He's going to have a lot of opportunity, even if it's not this year and the next, you know, years two and three. They're not going to be challenging for a playoff spot anytime soon. Um, so he's going to have the keys at some point. He's definitely going to have the opportunity. The thing about Fox is that he does not have a three-point jump shot at all. But his mid-range jump shot, I think, is a little bit underrated. He's not good. I don't want to overstate things here. But he's decent enough in the 15 to 20-foot range that I can see his three-point shot coming along a lot more than I can for Josh Jackson. And Fox is also a better free-throw shooter than Jackson, which, if you look at historical data, college free-throw percentage tends to be a lot more indicative of future shooting success than three-point percentage. And if you don't believe that, just look at Justice Winslow's numbers from Duke. If you're only shooting, like, 53-pointers in a season, you can look a lot better just purely by luck than you're actually going to look in the NBA when you're taking those shots more regularly. Yeah, that's fair. All right, let's move on to the five major questions section. And once again, we will start at the top with the Warriors. Can the Warriors win 70 or more games this year? I think if the question is can, the answer is yes, very clearly. They have the talent. They won 73 games before they got Kevin Durant. 
the question of will they is a little bit more interesting. And I'm torn. I think they'll be somewhere in the 68 to 70 win range. And the reason that I'm not entirely out on them winning 70 games, which they have absolutely no reason to push for, is that their bench was already really good. And I think their bench got even better this offseason, such that even if the starters literally never play in the fourth quarter, I think the bench will be good enough to carry them even through games where the starters rest. And the other thing that's worth noting is not only did Adam Silver change the rest rules, which almost directly seem to apply to the Warriors and the Spurs, but the season is also longer, which means that there will be fewer of the back-to-backs and the four games in five nights have been eliminated. And I think the teams that that will affect the most are the teams at the top and the teams at the bottom. The teams at the bottom, because they're not going to be able to get schedule wins from anybody, and the teams at the top, because there's going to be less need to rest their guys. And that deep bench plus the extended season, I think gives the Warriors a pretty solid shot of breaking the 70-game mark. Yeah, I think you you basically took the words right out of my mouth, where if the question is can they, is yes, they definitely, definitely can. Um, Will they? Um, I think if I was betting, I would peg them in closer to probably 68 wins this year. Um, You know, that's, you know, splitting hairs at that point. But yeah, there's going to be stretches, like we said, that, you know, (laughs) Nick Young and Armie Casper are the ones that go off for like those huge three-point barrages that you're talking about that just bury teams. Um, They're deep, so they, they definitely could. You just, you know, the West has gotten even more talent acquired in the conference, so they're going to have, you know, just, you know, even better games, better talent to play against there. But yeah, I, I would probably peg, peg them for 68 wins if I'm guessing right now. But yeah, 70 is definitely in the question for them. Next up, the Los Angeles Clippers. And my question for them is one that you answered earlier, but I wanted to go into in a little bit more depth, which is, can the Clippers make the playoffs? And my guess is that they will be either the seventh seed or the eighth seed because they won 51 games last season, but that was with significant time missed from both Blake Griffin and Chris Paul. And they also just really underperformed down the stretch run of last season after their incredible start to the year that made everybody think for a minute about what the end of the season was going to look like. Of course, it didn't end up changing anything dramatically. But I think the Clippers last year were more talented than their 51 wins. And I think that they obviously lost talent with losing Chris Paul, but that they did as good a job as could have been expected in terms of replacing him. They basically got his offensive game in Milos Teodosic and his defensive game in Patrick Beverly. And I agree with the point that you made earlier that the two of them should really be playing together as much as possible. I think the Clippers will win somewhere between 45 and 47 games and be the bottom of the Western Conference playoffs. But given the rumblings around Doc Rivers, I think it's also entirely possible that this team gets off to a mediocre start and Doc Rivers is fired and the season goes in the tank and they try and trade DeAndre Jordan and everything falls apart. Interesting. See, I I don't see that happening. I I agree with you. I have them finishing seventh in my standings predictions. I have them coming in at 43 wins. Um, So, you know, where you said 45 to seven, I think we're kind of in the same neighborhood on them. Um, that I would be shocked if Doc Rivers is fired this year. I, I think that they'll they'll be a playoff team. I think that they'll um, they'll show flashes in the regular season, and then they'll they'll give a team a good series in the playoffs. But I yeah, I have them as a seven seed. I I would be shocked if they didn't make the playoffs. I would go as far as saying I think their roster still has enough talent on it. 
the only reason I wouldn't be shocked if they miss the playoffs is just because the Western Conference is so talented. I mean, the Denver Nuggets and the Minnesota Timberwolves both missed the playoffs last season, and both of those teams got significantly better in the offseason. And obviously, the Thunder made the playoffs last year, but they're clearly going to make a jump in the standings. And the Trailblazers played much better down the stretch of last season with Yusuf Nurkic than their 41-41 and record would indicate. So it's not that I think the Clippers are a team that doesn't have playoff caliber talent. I just think it's that there are going to be at least two teams that have playoff caliber talent in the West that are going to miss the playoffs this coming season. Yeah, it's a bloodbath out there. I mean, on my predictions, I have the Grizzlies, Pelicans, and the Jazz as the first three teams missing the playoffs in the West. And those are arguably better than every single team in the East, except for probably the top five. Um, it's it's crazy. Like, it's, yeah, I, if they do miss the playoffs, I don't think it'll necessarily be because they implode. It'll maybe just because one of those teams, you know, maybe Boogie and Davis really figure it out and they become better than we think they will be. Or, you know, the Jazz don't take as big of a step back after losing Hayward. Um, but I, if I was betting money, I would bet on the Clippers making the playoffs. I, I have them as a seven seed. Um, I could see them getting as high as, you know, possibly the five seed. I have the Blazers and Timberwolves ahead of them um, but it's pretty close between those three it's they could finish anywhere in there and I wouldn't be too shocked moving on to the other Los Angeles team the Los Angeles Lakers and this question feels a bit mean-spirited but I'm gonna ask it anyway because it's the most important question about the Lakers and also the one that is absolutely never going to get asked with Lonzo Ball in the fold but can this team defend anyone because they were the 30th ranked defense last season and Brooke Lopez is better than people give him credit for on defense, but he's not a good defender. And Lonzo Ball is probably going to be a massive negative on that end as a rookie, just because A, rookies are never good on defense anyway, with some very rare and very large exceptions. And the Lakers at least have KCP, who is laughably better of a defender than Jordan Clarkson. But Outside of Caldwell Pope, I just don't see anyone on this team who's even really an above-average defender unless you're a big fan of Larry Nance, which, granted, I am. No, they're going to definitely have to be a team that plays very good team defense. They don't have any—even KCP isn't, you know, a top-of-the-line lockdown defender, although he is, a, you know, a, an above-average defender at his position. Um, but no, the one thing I will say is I don't think they'll finish 30th this year in defense because I feel like the Bulls will be below them, so they will have at least improvement there. They will at least move up to 20 29th. Ouch. But yeah, it's it's going to be ugly. They're going to have some track meets there. I think that, you know, speaking of the Bulls, you'll see, see a similar playing style where it's pretty fast paced and there's a lot of possessions and just by that, other teams are going to score a lot on them. So now on to the big question for the Sacramento Kings. And we kind of left this out of the Kings section earlier. So I want to go into this in a little bit more depth. Which big men are going to take the reins and finish the year as starters in Sacramento. They brought in Zach Randolph from the Grizzlies in one of the more hilarious stories in my mind of the offseason where the Kings and the Grizzlies basically just swapped seven and eight guys on their bench with Carter and Randolph going to Sacramento and Ben McElmore and Tyreek Evans going to Memphis. But the Kings have quite a few big men on their roster, even after the DeMarcus Cousins trade. And I want to see who of their younger big men 
get to step up and get major roles this coming season. And Harry Giles is kind of out of that picture after the team declared him out until January. And Yorgos Papianis is kind of out of that picture because he isn't any good. But Scalabissier was really solid down the stretch of last season. And I've been very in on Willie Cauley-Stein for a very long time. Omri Caspi is no longer my profile picture in our Slack chat because Willie Cauley-Stein is. But what are your thoughts on the Kings' young big men and who is the most likely to break out this coming year? Um, I'd say the most likely to break out is Willie Cauley-Stein. You know, I just think what he can do on both ends of the floor if he becomes, you know, if he realizes that full potential is just greater than any of the other big men on the roster. Um, I think if they're smart, you know, they shouldn't try and, you know, rush the rebuild. They're not, you know, they're not a team that has any business being in the playoffs this year. So they should just, if they're smart, they're going to let Scal and Willie Cauley-Stein get the majority of the minutes there and just let them develop and see what they can grow into. Um, You know, Scal showed some signs last year that he can step out and at least shoot it from the mid-range little bit um you know so you gotta like how that potential fit could be there i do think you know zach randolph being there he's he's gonna play a role um but i think he's another guy that's just there a little bit more for mentorship i i don't think he thinks this is a playoff team you know maybe in his mind he does but you know he he probably shouldn't they're not a playoff team um but yeah don't sleep on harry giles there long term though i still think that he's very interesting you know he's a guy that obviously has had some very big injury concerns but you hope he can put it together because i i do think he's an intriguing guy there long term if he can get right I think despite the fact that Harry Giles was the number one high school recruit in his class for basically all of his high school tenure, that Scow still has the highest upside of any of these bigs just because the combination of his shooting touch and his athleticism, I think he has the potential, and again, we're talking ceiling here, of someone who could be a multiple-time all-star I'm not sure I see that for Willie Cauley-Stein or the now-recovering-from-injury Harry Giles, although granted, if Giles can make a semi-full recovery, he will probably be the best of these guys. But the thing about Willie Cauley-Stein that really intrigues me is that he had one of the fastest lane agility drill times in NBA Combine history. And I'm not talking about big men. I'm talking about just fastest, period. He is ridiculously quick for any kind of player— and just beyond absurdly quick for a seven-footer. And while I don't think he's ever going to score enough to be an all-star type player, his defensive potential is really interesting. And especially for a coach in Dave Yeager who really emphasizes that end of the floor, I think that I agree with you that Cauley Stein is probably going to be the biggest breakout big man from this roster. Yeah, he's a freak athletically. That's part of why I like him so much. I think that just by pure nature that, he's going to turn into a menace on the defensive end. Yeah, I think long-term he's the guy there. Like you said, he may not ever actually be an all-star, but I think he's a guy that, you know, probably has the chance to make the biggest impact on the game. Like I said, both ends of the floor. He's His upside is he, he can be an animal, 100%. All right, let's wrap up by going through a few questions about the future outlook for this division and... The biggest question for the future of this division is probably also the biggest question for the future of the NBA, which is how many more years until the Warriors are no longer the title favorites? And my completely off the top of my head guess is I think that it will realistically be five years from now. And that's just absurd to say, but Steph Curry is the kind of shooter whose game will never age to the point of him being ineffective. I mean, he could continue to play 
as a spot-up shooter until, honestly, his early to mid-40s, I think. And Kevin Durant relies on his athleticism more than Curry does, but he's still a seven-footer who can shoot better than almost anyone else in the league. And if the Warriors manage to retain Draymond Green, I think they're going to be the title favorites for the next five years, even if they have to move on from Klay Thompson. And I guess I sort of answered that question already, but I think Draymond Green is a lot more important to this team's future than Klay Thompson, just because if Steph Curry is... Well, if Steph Curry and LeBron James are the two most irreplaceable players in the league, I think you got to put Draymond in the top five just for what he can do on the defensive end. Yeah, you literally took the word right out of my mouth. I was just going to say at, at least three years, more likely five to six, just because that's how long Curry is under contract for. As long as you have him on your team, you're going to be a contender no matter really who you put around him. But yeah, you subtract Clay Thompson from this mix and you still have Curry, Durant, and Draymond Green, you're going to be fine. And that's not sliding Clay in the least. He's a very good player. He fits that system well, but there's just so much talent there. Um, I mean, as long as they financially can keep these guys together, they're going to be one of the best teams in the league. You talk about Curry as a guy that could probably be a decent player into you know, his 40s. I feel like Kevin Durant's that same type of player where he's a good enough shooter that he, his game's going to age really well. Um, they're they're going to be contenders as long as Curry and Durant are on the team and healthy. Um, Draymond Green, I, I agree with you. He's probably one of the most irreplaceable players on there. Um, you talk about you know how Jordan Bell fits that system. You know that's the exact same thing for Draymond Green. He doesn't need a ton of touches, um, and he's he's still going to get his. And so he's a perfect fit. It's it, they've broken the NBA. It's going to be them in Cleveland. I feel like for the next you know four or five years. Well, the question of whether Cleveland is on the other side of that equation for the next four or five years actually leads right into our next question, which is, are the Lakers going to be able to actually get a superstar this coming offseason? And honestly, given the situation currently in Oklahoma City, the odds of the Lakers getting a superstar seem to be going down by the day because the three biggest names that have been sort of in this Lakers circle have been Russell Westbrook, who just signed that massive contract extension and is not going anywhere for a long time. Paul George, who has said repeatedly, and maybe you aren't as inclined to believe him just because of all the rumblings about Los Angeles, he's said repeatedly that all he cares about is winning, and the Thunder are a lot better set up to win for the next few years than the Lakers are. And the last name is LeBron James. And the thing about LeBron is that if I were him, I would not want to stick around in Cleveland because I do not want to have to deal with Dan Gilbert every day for the rest of my NBA career. And I don't even say that as a joke. I mean that completely seriously. If Dan Gilbert hadn't gotten lucky enough to have the best player in the world to be born in Akron, Ohio, and also, by the way, the fact that they won three out of four number one overall picks— he would be talked about in the same circles as Jim Dolan and the other guys that are thought of as the worst owners in the NBA. And if I were LeBron, I'd want to get out of that situation as fast as possible. Yeah, so I guess to answer the first part, um, will the Lakers get a superstar? You know, I, I wouldn't count I wouldn't count on it, no. I mean, they really haven't 
done super well in free agent meetings the last few years. You don't really know what's going to change there. Um, you add, you know, the Lonzo ball there on the court. That's very appealing. But, you know, you look at, you know, LeVar ball. Do, do superstars want to go over there? Like, I I would say there's zero chance LeBron's in, as a, in a Laker uniform next year. There's zero percent chance of that. I think he'd be a Clipper before he would be a Laker. Um, so I, I, I think the Lakers are smart. They're just going to keep taking that slow rebuild. Because I, I mean, you know, maybe they go get a superstar. But, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be Paul George. I think that more than likely he stays in Oklahoma unless it's just, you know, a complete meltdown there this year. Um, as far as, you know, the second question, you know, I, yeah, I guess I do think, I think there's a good chance Paul George stays in OKC this year because I think that they're going to be really good. I think Russ is going to defer, not defer to him, but he's going to, you know, do a better job of sharing the ball, keeping everybody happy. Um, and similar, like kind of them, it's a good situation. Same with LeBron, you know, where else is he going to go to have a better chance to win, you know, unless he goes to, you know, Golden State or, you know, Boston, you know, Washington, you know, the Cavaliers are set up pretty nice, especially with that first round pick next year that, you know, they may keep or, you know, may use as a trade piece, um, I, I do agree Dan Gilbert's probably one of the most annoying people in the world to work for. I just I don't know from a pure basketball perspective where LeBron goes that it's a lot better um, without having to gut what is you know currently on that team to make it work. All right, let's move on to our last question before we wrap things up. And talking about the almost certainly bottom two teams in this division, who do you think has a brighter future between the Sacramento Kings and the Phoenix Suns? And I'm going to try and take off my Kings fan glasses at least a little bit on this one, but I still think that the Kings have a brighter future than the Suns. The thing about those two rosters is that Devin Booker probably has the brightest future of any individual player on either of these teams, but I think the Kings just have a bigger stable of young talent. Buddy Heald really had a terrible start to his rookie year in New Orleans, but Once he got to the Kings, he averaged 15 points a game on 49, 43, 81 shooting splits. And Scal obviously looked incredible down the stretch. And we're both pretty high on Willie Cauley-Stein. On the other hand, outside of Devin Booker and Josh Jackson, I just don't really buy into the young talent on the Suns. I think Marquise Chris is one of the best athletes in the league with some of the worst court awareness I've ever seen. I think Dragon Bender might not really ever be the kind of player that people were hoping he would be out of the draft. And granted, he's still incredibly young, but I don't think he has enough big man skills to be a future center, and I don't think he has enough guard-slash-forward type of skills to really be a power forward. So even though the Suns have the highest individual upside with Devin Booker, I think overall the Kings just have a deeper stable of young talent. See, I would go the other way on that one. I would definitely uh, lean toward the Suns on this one. You know, just just going through uh, the roster, I feel like they're re- built really, really well for the modern NBA. I, I'm higher on Bender than it sounds like you are. I, I really, really like Marquise Chris. I think that he's a guy that as he continues to, you know, add the three-point shot to his game, um, you know, for people out there that play fantasy, he's a one-block, one-steal, one-three type of guy. Um, I, I really like how he fits in the modern NBA today. Um, TJ Warren, Josh Jackson, you know, that's 100% better than anything they have at small forward there. Um, I would take Devin Booker, you know, over Buddy Hield, Bogdan. Um, even the point guard position, I think Eric Blood, though, when he's healthy, he's, you know, arguably better than George Hill. Um, I just I just don't really see any position besides probably center that I like the Kings' uh, current setup more than I do the Suns. 
Um, so yeah, I would definitely go the other way on this one. Uh, so that would, might be an interesting bet to kind of look at and follow this season. Interesting. I think a lot of that is that I'm pretty high on Darren Fox and you seem like you're pretty low on him. A little bit, yeah. Which I can understand. I really can't understand why people are out on Fox. There are definitely some questions there. I also think that I'm a little lower on Devin Booker than you are. I just think that his atrocious defense is going to be more and more of a problem as his career goes on because people are going to focus less on how incredible of an offensive player he is. I'm also, I think, a little more down on Josh Jackson than you are. So there we go. Those are, you know, those are enough disagreements right there. But I can understand why you feel the way you do about the Suns. But I think that my belief in the Kings is not just not just me being a fan. I think I think that there is at least something there. And it's a debate, I think, worth having as opposed to just very clear answer like say who's going to win the pacific division right no i don't think the kings are bad they're definitely not the laughing stock kings that they were a couple years ago um they've really done a good job kind of getting some some nice young pieces there um as far as booker's defense yeah he may not ever become you know an all defensive player but um you know as long as eric bledsoe's there he's a pretty good defender uh josh jackson he can guard you know probably one through four um tj warren's not a slash defensively i think you know even marquise chris shows that he could be you know a force on the defensive end um so i think there's enough defense around there that his offense kind of makes up for that gap but yeah it's definitely going to be interesting i think this year they're definitely two of the clubhouse leaders for finishing you know as the worst team in the west um but long term they they both have some pieces to be excited about there all right anything else before we wrap this thing up um you know not i think that's about it all right well he is jordan schultz you can find him on twitter at dino bball d-y-n-o b-b-a-l Actually, it is at Dino NBA now. I got finally got that handle I've been trying to get for like a year, and it finally came open. So it's Dino NBA now, so a little bit easier to find. Oh, well, there we go. Okay, you can find Jordan Breaking at, news. <laughs> breaking news right at the end of the podcast. You can find Jordan on Twitter at Dino NBA. You can follow his work on the hashtag basketball website, as well as on the hashtag basketball podcast network with both the hashtag Bulls pod and the Dynasty podcast. You can find me on Twitter at NBA, J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website. If you have any feedback, please Leave a rating or a review on iTunes, especially if you want to leave a positive review. That really helps spread the word. You can also reach out to me either on Twitter or via email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.